Welcome to Football Uncovered, a podcast that delivers you the most weird and wonderful stories about the men and women in charge of the biggest clubs in the world. This series will bring you some truly bizarre and often unbelievable tales of the highs and lows from the people in control of the purse strings. My name is Will Brazier and along with Richard Johnson we are joined by our man in the know, Sporting Intelligence's Nick Harris. Today, our final episode of the series, we've waited to bring out the mother of all corruption stories. It's FIFA. Many of you will know the headlines but the 10 people we meet in this episode and a lot more use their power and position in ways which will make you laugh and maybe cry. But before we get into it, if you are listening to this, please leave a rating and review to let us know what you think and why not recommend it to a friend. Also, while you're at it, give Sporf a follow on Twitter and while you're there, follow Nick Harris at Sporting Intel. Nick, we've come so far. This is the end, my friend. Don't cry because it's over. Smile because it happened. Yes, I think we've saved the worst till last in every sense. These are people who are not just bad in many cases, but criminal. Hilarious in some cases, but also not very funny at all. People who actually, over the last few decades, have been in control of the biggest decisions in football, the people at the top of FIFA. Going through the stories that Nick's provided for us, Rich, it's like you you laugh at the anecdotes, but then you think, ah, these people are controlling the world of football, who's getting a World Cup, and many more of the things. Yeah, it is quite sad in parts. And I think obviously, you know, it's but it's interesting. I think it's important that we talk about this as well. You know, through series one of Football Uncovered, we've we've documented mainly some of these um not always bad intentioned um, owners and figures, you know, behind the scenes yep. um, of the game. Um, these guys are really at the very top. And uh, yeah, some of the stuff is is pretty pretty damning, really. Some of these people we're going to deal with, they're accused over the years of everything from stealing charity money meant for victims of earthquakes and tsunamis to ticket touting on an industrial scale, bribery of many kinds, whether in football elections or for tournament destination ballots. And in one case, um, a murder uh, by bludgeoning with a laptop. Um, so we've got a crazy cast of characters, as we have in all these episodes. And I thought it might be interesting... Uh, if we approach it to sort of doing a top 10 or a bottom 10 of colourful FIFA villains. Like, yes, this is serious stuff, but it's just so bizarre in some places. You can only laugh at the audacity of, of the fraud and the corruption. There's people on this list that haven't made the list and they've done some pretty shocking things, to say the least. That gets almost gets my football and covered juices uh, flowing for the top 10 you can sort of be our Steve Wright (laughs) down three it's uh, Joe Havelarge right uh, where should we start Nick should we start with some people who who, who were bad but not quite bad enough to make the cut sort of best of the rest the best of the rest people who didn't get into the top 10 but they're just not corrupt enough (laughs) And that is saying something. Yeah, go on. Give us your first best of the rest. So, unfortunately, Michel Platini has not made the top 10. He was obviously a brilliant midfielder for Nancy and Saint-Étienne and Juventus in France and later managed France. Became the UEFA president, uh, FIFA vice president and a FIFCO exco member. That's a member of the executive committee, the the decision-making body that until a few years ago was 24, 25 men. And they ran world football. So he was, in fact... uh, been given a, an eight-year ban from all football in 2015 for receiving a £1.6 million disloyal payment from the FIFA president, uh, Seth Blatter, in 2011. And it was alleged he was paid the money to support Blatter's 2011 FIFA presidential candidacy. But Blatter and Platini said that, in fact, the money that Blatter owed Platini for consultancy work back in 2002, and he'd just forgotten to pay him for nine years, which sounds entirely reasonable. It happens. Um, Platini also surfaced in the Panama Papers as controlling various anonymous offshore accounts for reasons unknown, although his spokesman said it was for tax purposes. Again, sounds completely reasonable. And, of course, he's well known that Platini voted for Qatar uh, to host the 2022 World Cup. Uh, because it would benefit French trade with Qatar, not because it was good for football. So all that's known, but none of this is good enough to get Michel into the top 10. So Michel, désolé, je suis désolé. (laughs) And and I think for any FIFA chat, the fact that we've got Qatar, Panama Papers and Seb Blatter is sort of, I mean, we we normally have a bingo card and he's ticked all of those, but he's still not made it into the top 10. 
No. I mean, basically, the, the key thing that got him banned was this disloyal payment. And, and frankly, what's £1.6 million between friends? So, Like, because when I said my friends thing, obviously you put like drinks. It wasn't called titled disloyal payment on the actual bank statement. Also not making the top 10 is Issa Hayatu, um, who was the head of African football for many years. And in 2010, just before the vote for the 2018 and 2022 World Cup destinations by FIFA's Exco, which included Mr Hayatu, who was a FIFA vice president, uh, BBC's Panorama and, and, and the brilliant Andrew Jennings in particular revealed documents showing that Hayatu had taken bribes through the 1990s over TV contract awards for the World Cup. And the BBC said the documents said that he was paid 100,000 francs and he said he didn't get the money personally and that the bribe went instead to the uh, uh, African Congress um, that he controlled. And it was also alleged that he and other um, ex-co members had t- taken bribes to vote for Qatar to host the World Cup. But these uh, allegations or even partial admissions are not enough to get Mr Hayato a place in our top 10. FIFA, in the wake of the 2015 scandal, um, was actually restructured. So now there's a much larger sort of management committee that that takes the, the decisions about what happens with where World Cups go and big decisions. Up until that point, there was this ex-co, uh, the executive committee which generally was 24 or 25 men all men at this period and they um, basically met a few times a year with massive expenses in this underground um, room at FIFA HQ in Zurich and it it looks like something from a a cult movie or or some, some really secretive Freemasons thing they've got this this giant table and it's dark and sort of chamber and these almost thrones sitting around the edges and basically they would they would um the big things they would do is they would decide on on where the world cup would be um hosted every four years so typically speaking um you know bidding nations would host members of the executive committee and quite often bribe them and then they would vote in a series of rounds. That's the biggest thing that they were sort of well known for. But they also made decisions about sort of where FIFA funds should go and where FIFA money should be funneled. So these guys for these particular decades up till 2015 were a group of 24, 25 men. Sometimes it got a bit lower when they got banned for stuff, but a group of 20 something men normally in their sort of at least 50s up to 70s and 80s, would make key decisions, particularly about the awarding of World Cups. So by the same token that um, Mr Hayatu doesn't get in, neither does Mr Marios Lefkaritis, who was um, a Cypriot member of the Exco, who voted on the 2018 and 2022 tournaments, which have obviously become notorious for being given to uh, Russia and then to Qatar. And they were actually the subject of a FIFA investigation to find out what happened. He doesn't make the top 10, even though there's a mystery of how he sold a plot of land near his home for £27 million to Qatar's Sovereign Wealth (laughs) Fund a few months after the FIFA Exco, including him, had voted to send the World Cup to Qatar. Now, I'm not saying the land was only worth a fiver, maybe a tenner, but £27 million. That was never clearly explained. He declined to talk about the details. And when I asked him about his 2022 voting, his office sent me a statement saying, please be informed that Mr. Marios Lefkaritis is recovering from a surgery and cannot answer your questions. He will not attend FIFA meetings in early October. And that was it. So no, your allegations are terrible and wrong. Just can't comment because he's had a minor surgery he's not making the top 10 now someone else who obviously should make the top 10 and you'll find out why but i'm going to discount it for other reasons is yao Havalange, who was blatter's mentor and head of fifa for many years before set blatter took over he died in 2016 aged 100 and has been described as possibly the most corrupt and powerful figure world sport has ever seen He was exposed for bribery and corruption and known to consort with convicted criminals and military dictators. He was too powerful and too well-connected to ever be punished or truly answer for any of his wrongdoing. He rubbed shoulders with presidents, royalty and popes. He was a Brazilian who was also close to to Horst Dazzler. I don't know if you know about the Dazzler brothers, but we'll come back to that. Um, And close to his son-in-law, Ricardo Tequeira, who took £40 in bribes in connection with World Cup marketing rights. Anyway, when Havalange, this possibly most corrupt, powerful figure in history, died. Set Blatter said, football owes Havalange a huge debt of gratitude 
football, your passion, my mission is in good shape. Havelange was 82 and had just stepped down as FIFA president by the time I had my first uh, uh, sort of staff writing job in football. So I never met him or covered his wrongdoing personally. So that's why he's not in my top 10. But he definitely deserves a dishonourable mention. And he's the star of um, everyone's favourite film, uh, United Passions, which FIFA try to sort of rewrite those wrongdoings and paint it out to be beautiful. I think Tim Roth, was it, starred as Blatter in that one? It's a fantastic cast. Right, before we get to the top <laughs> ten, there's one more name on here as well that doesn't quite make it. Yeah, I was asking some friends and, and people on Twitter for their nominations for sort of people <laughs> who, who should uh, get into this list. My friend um, James Corbett, who's a long-time FIFA watcher, although, although this guy never held FIFA office, he was the president of the Football Federation of Indonesia, which is the world's fourth most popular country, um, a guy called Nerdin Halid, and he ran the Indonesian FA from a prison cell, having stolen food aid from tsunami victims. And he was jailed in 2007 for embezzling $18.5 million. And his, the FA treasurer of Indonesia, Joseph Rivo, he also did time in prison for beating his wife to death with a laptop. Um, and when Halid was first sent to prison in 2007, Set Blatter said Indonesian football was in an unhappy situation, but he didn't take any action to, to make it better. And sometimes with these football officials, you know, it's like waiting for a bus. You know, you're waiting for one <laughs> to come along in Indonesia and then you get two at the same time, you know, stealing money from tsunami victims, battering you wife to death with a laptop. But obviously, yeah. Qatar features a lot in this and, and the bribes that, that won them the World Cup. But... I sort of Allegedly. Think, uh, sorry, the alleged <laughs> bribes that sort of uh, led to Qatar winning the World Cup. But also on the alleged front as well, we sort of sit here and uh, like, this is uh, Englishman, like obviously we were bidding for that as well. Uh, allegedly, w- were we sort of part of that course as well? Well, there was a there was a report commissioned by FIFA into the whole bidding process and uh, and that examined all the bidding nations to see what they've done or not done in terms of bribes and uh, favours to the Exco members. And actually, the English FA came out of it pretty badly in terms of um, hosting dinners for people and giving people gifts and giving people access to various things and uh, certainly not blemish-free. And But, I mean, this is the way of FIFA and these bidding things going back years. I mean, when we come, come on to one of... Um, uh, the most colourful characters that we're going to talk about. I think there's five incidents alone of how the English FA over the years had bent over backwards to do favours for this particular guy, including um, at one point um, effectively writing off a £135,000 debt um, that was owed to them by a friend of this guy. So in effect, I mean, that is effectively £135,000 bribe to try and persuade someone to do what you want to do by the English FA. So... By no means squeaky clean. Is it sort of like in on the pitch, the English players have never been good at sort of the dark arts of the diving, the complaining to the referee. So, but now we're sort of warmer to it because it's a needs must situation. Well, you say that, but but with the recent passing of Diego Maradona, have you seen the clip of the mm. the seven fouls on Maradona yeah. in the '86 match against England? Yeah. If you haven't, seek it out. I mean, he takes a punch to the face at one point. He's absolutely hacked down on four or five occasions. Um, so I think this idea of sort of English fair play is is sort of maybe just uh, rattling around in the heads of Englishmen rather than being a reality. It's my delusion. I've got a lot of it. On this top 10, uh, what would be great actually is, Will, you sort of announced some of these names. And Nick, I want you to, to, to sort of tell us how Will, Will pronounces some of these, uh, some of these characters because there is a few mouthfuls in here. So number 10, coming in at number 10, we have... Warwai Makadi of Thailand. Warari Makudi of Thailand. So, you know, we're not going to spend a lot of time with him, but basically, you know, he did end up getting banned uh, by FIFA Ethics Committee in 2016 for five years and fined for forgery and falsification. But that was kind of just the tip of the iceberg, really. Over many years, there was all sorts of um, uh, suggestions that he he was uh, asking for and receiving um, favours and uh, from ex-co members in exchange for support um, for for his vote for various tournaments. Um, In Parliament in um, 2011, British Parliament was told that Makudi had demanded TV rights for a friendly between England and the Thai national team in return for voting for England for the 2018 World Cup. Um, This led to a a corruption investigation. He benefited basically in lots of ways from asking people around the world for 
favours and stuff for his vote. He's also referred to as Bungie on his Wikipedia page. Is that um, in any way linked to him taking bribes? Taking bungs, I couldn't possibly say. <laughs> right, let's move on to number nine. Sheikh Salman of Bahrain. Why is he here? Well, he, let's just introduce listeners to, to him. He stood against and lost to Gianni Infantina for the FIFA presidency in 2016. He was odds-on to win uh, that race a few weeks before the vote. Uh, and then I, I'd been investigating him for some time. Course, and I wrote yeah. about um, allegations that the Bahraini royal family, of which he's a member, had perpetrated human rights abuses during the Arab Spring of 2011. It was alleged that Sheikh Salman chaired a committee whose task was to identify athletes, including footballers, um, who were involved in pro-democracy demonstrations. Um, He denies this committee ever met. Um, It is also alleged that he was personally asked to assist a footballer who was detained and tortured during this period. And um, he stated that he had no power to intervene. But there were numerous footballers who who were uh, arrested and tortured and, and as a senior football official in Bahrain, on every level, legally, morally and otherwise, Sheikh Salman's duty should have been to sort of protect football and footballers rather than play any role, however peripheral, in torturing them. Um, so, you know, that's one reason he's in. Um, I have to say, when I was researching this, often when you're researching and and, and um, investigating people like Sheikh Salman, you obviously have to put... Uh, your allegations and what you're going to do to their lawyers to give them, you know, um, a right of comeback. And there was this particular episode. I don't know if it's the most legal letters I've ever had on one subject, but it was definitely the most I'd ever had in a single day. Um, I, in one afternoon, um, I think I had six legal six letters from his lawyers in one afternoon, each one increasingly more hysterical than the last sort of threatening you know fire and brimstone and and that it was not true and that you know if we repeated these allegations then bloody bloody blah so that was a lot of letters to sort of deal with and ultimately have to respond to but the lawyers were happy and we did the story and then on the day of the crucial vote itself I wrote another story that he'd effectively rigged uh, another football election in Asia by giving a coach to the Pakistan uh, National FA in exchange for their vote in, a, in another football of election. This was obviously behaviour that was banned by the FIFA's ethics code. And again, there was some legal pushback, but the story was true and it got printed on the morning um, of the vote. He was neck and neck in the first round of voting and then got beaten. Um, and I was in the conference hall in Zurich as events unfolded and a senior of official from the Asian Football Confederation, which is the area from which um, Sheikh Salman comes, came up to me during the day to say that there were senior Bahraini officials who said that after my story they would be quite happy if I was dead. <laughs> so that Jeez. was quite, quite, um, quite sinister. You know, we have to remember that the Arab Spring was just the biggest story in global yeah. politics of that year, and. Um, Citizens of many countries were out on the streets, you know, basically just protesting for democracy and whatever. And in Bahrain's case, they were, you know, corralled and and, and rounded up and then, you know, detained and in some cases tortured. Now, you know, he's part of the ruling family and he was party to obviously decisions that that were made. So to try and sort of say it was nothing to do with me was at at best, uh, you know, spineless and at worst, utterly despicable. And that's before you get into the sort of pulling of strings and rigging football elections. Yeah, you've changed the course of history here, really. Not really. It wasn't. It wasn't. I, I mean, Infantino obviously uh, came home fairly comfortably in the second round of votes, but um, and I'm not sure, frankly, the electorate who who were were voting would be uh, looking at my stories to make their minds up. I'm sure there was sort of uh, much more uh, other deals going on behind the scenes that ultimately got Amfintano into into the job that he still holds as FIFA president. Just very quickly before we sort of move on to our number eight, um, how do you get wind of stuff like this? Uh, not asking you to obviously reveal any sources, Nick, but, uh, you know, how do you get wind of the fact that he's been caught up in these types of controversies? Doing this job for 25 years now, you, you tend to go to, you, you know, certainly in pre-COVID days when we actually went anywhere, you would routinely go to the big meetings, so the FIFA Congresses and the UEFA Congresses. You would hang around in corridors and, 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 and meet officials. And as you got to meet people, you'd be introduced to other people. So basically through 
establishing a network of contacts both within sort of political football circles and also within journalism you know and and you you sort of get to know the people over many years and then people will tell you stuff I mean in terms of the Arab Spring stuff it was it was um you know I knew someone who worked a lot in human rights areas are particularly related to Bahrain so that the story about his involvement in in the Arab the quelling of the Arab Spring came from that in terms of uh, the coach um uh, the Pakistan uh, coach gift uh, which helped rig a, a football election that came from a contact in that part of the world who's a journalist who'd been doing that investigation and asked me to sort of help him so so that came from that but there's mm. there's a core group of of well not a core group there's a group of journalists who sort of are FIFA watchers some really really good journalists Martin Ziegler formerly of the Press Association now the Times is sort of a veteran FIFA watcher so is Matt Slater former um Press Association reporter now at the Athletic. There's Tarek Panja, who's a brilliant FIFA watcher who who um, worked for Bloomberg and and now works for the New York Times. Uh, James Corbett, my friend Rob Harris of the Associated Press, and and I guess sort of um, there's a core group in Germany and Scandinavia of sort of journalists who sort of work sometimes together and and sort of you know so basically through contacts mm. within football and within journalism, like an, an investigative supergroup. Sort of, but um, but you know, a lot of a lot of the stuff is quite dry and boring and technical. But you know, in the golden days of FIFA corruption, um, um, there was just stories everywhere. I mean, and obviously, Andrew Jennings needs a massive mention. I mean, Andrew Jennings, who you'd be aware of, the veteran Panorama reporter who was writing books about this stuff decades before anyone else could get near it, mm. um, because again, he built up just fantastic contacts and whistleblowers over the years wow well speaking of uh, the golden days of uh, fifa corruption shall we go on to number eight will yes jerome valkyrie the former fifa general secretary yeah jerome valk so valk. i mean jerome's corrupt in so many ways i mean he's obviously been you know i say obviously he's been banned from football he's also been um found guilty in a criminal court of various things but i guess um two 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 of the biggest scandals that i've sort of wrote about and and um that he helped to facilitate was firstly um, the facilitation of a $10 million bribe from the organisers of the 2000 World Cup in South Africa to various FIFA officials. Um, so I wrote this story in, in 2015 that uh, Valka was the, actually the official who signed off on that bribe. So just to be clear, the organisers of the 2010 World Cup, when they were bidding to host it, they arranged to pay people who voted for them, $10 million that they were split between them. And Valka, who was a senior FIFA official, said, yeah, that's fine. I'll sign off on that bribe. And um, and, and I actually got that story again from from a former colleague of of Valka's who told me that he was the guy um, who'd actually signed the paperwork. So we ran that on a, a Sunday in May. And then Marty Ziegler, who I mentioned before, uh, actually got got from one of his contacts an actual, you know, written documentary evidence. And uh, I remember the day Martin tweeted that, um, that that got, you know, went round the world in minutes because Martin <laughs> actually had written corroboration that Valka had signed off a $10 million bribe. So that was one one thing. Um, and the other one, and again, this was, this was um, an interesting one because it involved, um, again, a contact who, who I knew who'd, who'd been involved in um, secondary market, ticketing and hospitality. Um, This guy had for a number of years um, used his relationships with senior FIFA officials to get huge tranches of the best tickets for World Cup tournaments and then repackage them, basically sell them on the black market, in the secondary market. He tipped me off that he was going to make all this public so he invited. He he basically invited me and a few journalists from a couple from Germany, uh, somebody from America, um, a guy from the Guardian, and we were invited to this to this sort of posh hotel in Zurich where we were handed memory sticks with all the paperwork on it and documentation, um, and we were sat in this room as 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 this contact talked us through how Jerome Valka was central to a massive ticket touting operation, and. There were emails and stuff saying that how much money they were making, basically from the fraudulent wow. misappropriation of World Cup tickets. So, 
as we were sitting there going through all this, all the all the evidence, including a photograph of a suitcase that they'd got for Valka, which I think had, if memory serves, I think it was two hundred thousand dollar. It was sort of a, an advance on the first bung that he was going to get for helping facilitate this fraud. Um, they even had a, a, a photograph of the suitcase and, and, and explained why Valka hadn't picked it up on the day he was due. But loads of emails that totally um, put him in the shit. So as we were being told this, Valka was actually on a private plane to Russia on FIFA duty. And I was phoning the head of communications at FIFA to say, in about two hours' time, we're going to publish a story saying that the FIFA general secretary at the centre of a massive ticketing touting operation. And simultaneously, I was emailing Valka to get his comments, and he was emailing me for this private plane, which he then had to, he was ordered by FIFA to turn round and go back to Zurich because they wanted to know what the hell was going on and, you know, why journalists be got all this evidence against him and then it was that night as we forwarded the evidence to the FIFA communications office and we're just basically getting a no comment from Jerome or I'm innocent that he was actually I think it was I was in Zurich airport waiting to fly back to London when news came through that Jerome Valka had been suspended as a result of the story that we published at six o'clock that evening so like within two two and a half hours of the story coming out he was gone for good so that was Another one. Again, it's kind of ordinary run-of-the-mill 10 million bribe sanctioning for a hosting of a World Cup and then a big ticket-touting operation. You know what's interesting about, about Jerome? I agree. I think he definitely deserves his place uh, on this. But that, that, that ticket, that sort of this sort of black market ticket-touting scheme seems very labour-intensive, hand, hands-on. You know, like I can imagine it actually takes a lot of work to organise a uh, network of ticket scalpers at that level uh, yeah. which is kind of quite interesting really but I don't think it was labour intense for Jerome Jerome just had to allocate whatever uh, 10,000 tickets or 600 tickets so he when the tickets were allocated the, t- the the guy who was running the ticketing operation and selling it would just say I want 200 tickets for Argentina versus Holland 500 for whatever so Jerome would just send an email to the people allocating the tickets and say make sure Benny Benny gets the tickets that he needs, and then he would get the kickbacks um, from the touting operation. Wow. So I think he definitely deserves to be at eight and maybe higher, but he's not a household name. (laughs) Um, Let's move on to number seven. A different sort of corruption now. We're moving on to our first case of football doping, and it is Vitaly Mutko from Russia. Yeah, Vitaly Mutko. I mean, he's he's one of my favourites. I've written about Vitaly, particularly in relation to, to Russian doping for, for years, for sort of seven years. Um, so he's in because he was a FIFA Exco member um, during the 2018 and 22 bidding process. So he must get a dishonourable mention for his work in that process because he was the head of the Russian Football Federation. And when FIFA um, later... Um, tasked an American lawyer called Michael Garcia with compiling the Garcia report into corruption allegations um, during that process. Russia, i.e. Mutko, um, turned around and said, we can't give you any information because we borrowed the computers that our whole bidding campaign um, that we used during our bidding campaign, they've, they've gone back to the person we borrowed them from, which was actually Roman Abramovich, and they've been destroyed. So we haven't got any records of what we did so whatever Russia may or may not have done during that campaign, and I'm sure it was as interesting as some other nations did in persuading people to vote, Mr. Mutko and his team said, sorry, the computers have uh, been smashed, destroyed. Yeah, so obviously this is our first sort of case of doping, but I think for me that the sort of Russian doping scandal was highlighted by the, the amazing Icarus documentary and obviously the, the scale of it, but the, the audacity of it as well. Absolutely. I mean, the, the centre of um, of that scandal, which we actually first wrote about in, in, in the Mail on Sunday on um, 2013, was a corrupt laboratory boss called Grigory Rodchenkov, who's central to, to the brilliant Icarus. Um, but the sports minister at the time, and therefore the man ultimately responsible for the departments that were corruptly doping and then covering up oh, hundreds, possibly thousands of Russian athletes across all sports was Vitaly Mutko. So um, it was, I think it was late 2016 that um, that FIFA were first given evidence by WADA, the World Anti-Damping 
anti-doping agency that uh, footballers, a load of footballers, dozens of Russian footballers were implicated in the in the doping scheme, either because they were given protection, guaranteed protection that they would never test positive, even if they did, or in some cases that they've been caught taking performance enhancing drugs and, 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 and it was covered up. So FIFA at the end of 2016, had all this information, we're told, here you go, go and investigate these cases. And FIFA had a problem because they had a World Cup coming up in Russia where Vitaly Mutko was head of the organising committee as well as an ex-co-member of FIFA. So FIFA basically didn't take any meaningful action to investigate these Russian doping football cases or indeed why the ex-co-member Vitaly Mutko was still the president of the Russian FA, even though they have evidence of the Russian FA being involved in a systematic doping programme. So for those reasons, um, I think Vitaly has to get into this list. Right, let's move on to number six. Uh, He's in at number six and he's our first person to receive two, yes, two lifetime bans from FIFA. It's Mohammed bin Haman of Qatar. Yeah, two, two life bans from FIFA. All sorts of bribes over the years um, to football officials, particularly throughout Asia. Um, hundreds, you know, millions and millions of dollars to hundreds of different football officials, just so that as and when he would need them to be on his side, particularly in football elections, they would, you know, be favourable towards him. So lots and lots of sort of backhanders. Um, he was also involved in in one particular bribe scandal. You may remember one of the very, very famous photos of literally blocks of cash that were given to delegates in the Caribbean um, on a trip that that um, Mohammed bin Aman was involved of. If if you if you can't remember that, then look up blocks of cash fee for bribe. And I'm sure the photo that came up, brilliant scoop from Martin that got got that picture. Um, but it's a very very famous picture, symbolic of of corruption in football circles. Um, so yeah, that's Mohammed bin Aman. Ironically, he he wasn't. Um, he wasn't initially in favour of Qatar bidding for the World Cup for various reasons. I don't think he felt that it was sensible to have a, a World Cup uh, in summer in Qatar, as as it was traditional to have summer World Cups until Qatar won it. And now we're going to end up with a Winter World Cup in two years' time. But um, but obviously he was the face of of the Qatari bid and the Exco member who was sort of central to to them winning. Ultimately, maybe one day we will definitively find out who got paid how much and, and in what mm. different ways, apart from the obvious ways that we already know about in terms of, uh, you know, international trade and stuff. Um, but Mohammed bin Hamam, two life bands, and for two life bands, he gets to number six. Right, let's move it on to number five, and we're off to South America for not one, not two, but three amigos, Ricardo Texera, Julio Grondona, and Nicolas Leose. <sighs> Nicholas Leos, yeah. So, so we put them all together because they they're sort of together in their corruption, um, South American corruption on a massive scale. They're all indicted, investigated by the FBI and 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 the American authorities. All of them indicted in wholesale sort of fraud, TV contract bungs. Um, uh, the, the strong suggestion has always been that that they they took money um, or certainly did a deal with. Um, the Qataris on the one hand, and also uh, sort of in a collusion pact with the Spanish FA to give their votes to Qatar 2022 in a massively complex uh, sort of arrangement where um, a bunch of people on the Qatari side would give their votes to Spain for 2018. It didn't work that way because the Russians obviously were very persuasive in ways that perhaps we'll never know. So Spain didn't lose. Spain so lost out in 2018. They were all sort of trying to, trying to outbung each other. Basically, yeah. And uh, But come together, there was a collusion, there was a, a collusion deal where basically a, a group of people sort of who were behind Spain for 2018 and were also behind Qatar for 2022 mm. would collude to make sure that whatever behaviour went on so that they got each other's votes. Qatar did benefit from that and Spain lost out. But Texera, Grandona and Leos were absolutely sort of central to that. Um, Texera has been uh, um, accused of all sorts of massive corruption in his uh, native Brazil. Grandona, who's no longer with us, uh, you know, again, massive corruption allegations throughout his life, thoroughly unpleasant bloke um, uh, who's made all sorts of horrible pronouncements about different groups of people that he doesn't like and and Laos as well uh, involved so i think together 
the three of them are worth uh, our place at number five. You know what's uh, interesting about this as well, and, and you, you touched on it earlier in terms of some of these guys have involved in, uh, yeah, obviously taking or exchanging votes for TV rights, that sort of stuff. I think that says a lot about um, probably the influence that these people have in their native countries and actually the power that media plays within that. We had it with Warawai, yeah, yeah Makudi with Thailand. Yeah. We've got it with, with these guys in South America where ultimately the value of these TV rights to gain them control uh, maybe already they already have control from media perspective is is incredible really yeah i mean obviously that's where the money is particularly these days in recent decades the money of tv rights you know fifa fifa's principal source of income is billions of dollars every four year cycle in tv rights for 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 the world cup because the world cup is by far the biggest single sporting event you know in the world and it, it you know, it's it's just unparalleled by anything else in terms of eyeballs and and being a big event, and therefore the t- the world watches it, and therefore the TV companies pay big money to screen it, and therefore sort of deals around those rights are uh, have been particularly susceptible to corruption. Maybe wrong here, but the way in which those sort of tenders will work and that sort of stuff is probably quite difficult, just from a on the outset perspective to identify. You know why. Well, obviously, money comes into a big play. Like, why one broadcaster might be might be chosen over another, but ultimately, I can imagine that's like fairly easy to cover up at, a, at an initial level as well. Yeah, particularly if if everyone involved in it has no reason to to expose it, you know, mm-hmm. because the TV companies want rights and the FIFA wants to sell them for as much money as possible, and you know, sending a tournament to one place because it might get better right, bigger rights is, you know, might be one reason somebody votes a particular way and just a load of cash in your pocket in a straight bribe is is another way you might vote for somebody. But um, anyway, they're in there. Will, who's up at number four? Um, yeah, number four is Sheikh Ahmed of Kuwait. And I just want to highlight the first note on here. It says the most famous corrupt sports official you've never heard of. Yeah, I think so. I think most people probably don't know who Sheikh Ahmed Ahmed was. Again, he was until until he was uh, suspended or or left the FIFA Exco because uh, he turned up in in various corrupt uh, corruption schemes, uh, not least um, in the um, FBI and American uh, RICO and fraud and wiretapping conspiracy. Um, that's when he stepped back from FIFA. But this guy is somebody most people won't have heard of. Um, he is immensely powerful in global sport and sports politics because um, he, he sort of he, he's a, the central figure and, and a leading figure in the uh, international uh, Olympic associations of the Asian countries. And obviously Asia is a massive continent and therefore it's got lots of countries that have got international Olympic committees. And he is basically the most influential person within sports politics in Asia. So through all sorts of um, politicking and uh, relationship building and whatever, he effectively got Thomas back um, elected as the IOC president. So he was sort of the puppeteer and, and power behind the throne to get president of, of the IOC elected. He was um, Sheikh Salman's, you know, the man, the puppet on the uh, behind Sheikh Salman, puppet master behind Sheikh Salman's, ta- uh, you know, tilt at the FIFA presidency. Um, as I said, he controls mo- 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 much of, of Asian uh, sports politics and therefore much of global sports politics. And um, a few years ago, I think it was 2016, um, myself and two two colleagues from Scandinavia um, had had a tip and were given a sort of tranche of documents about quite how he ran his empire from, from Kuwait. His headquarters basically had immunity. Um, nobody could go and, and look inside there. And the stuff going on there was just mind-boggling in terms of who, who who he was helping and in what ways and nobody could get to it. Anyway, we've got a load of documents which kind of effectively showed how he ran Asian sport and the strings he pulled and the people he influenced in legal and illegal ways. And, uh, you know, nothing happened to him basically because he's very, very powerful and he still carries on doing most of what he's doing, but he's no longer at FIFA because I think even FIFA realised after 2015 that you can't be wanted by the FBI for... Um, you know, for being part of a massive conspiracy and fraud conspiracy and still be part of the new FIFA. He's number four. Most people won't ever have heard of him. 
but yeah, he sounds like a pretty dangerous guy. Uh, I don't know about dangerous. He, his lawyer sent me a lot of letters. And in the end, we did a couple of stories about him. One about sort of election um, rigging and another one about a match that he hosted in Kuwait involving all sorts of famous people, including David Beckham, paid him loads of money to attend the opening of a new stadium in Kuwait, which shouldn't have happened because Kuwait shouldn't have been staging uh, matches because they were banned at the time. Interesting guy, but yeah, uh, there's a lot of these people around. To number three. To the podium, bronze medalist. And he only really gets in because because he was, you know, the El Capo. It's Sepp Blatter at number three. Sepp has not been personally implicated in terms of taking bungs or bribes or corruption i mean obviously he he was the men he, he was the protege of yao havalange he knew that lots and lots of stuff was going on and let it happen he knew about the corruption of all sorts of officials and didn't punish them i guess he facilitated and created an environment where a lot of bad people could get away with a lot of things so he's in there um for that reason because he knew where all the bodies were buried and he made sure that nobody got caught for decades and he went out of his way to protect bad people by just simply not enforcing you know investigations into them um but but surprisingly not anywhere near as as corrupt as, as many people would perceive him to be and also sort of you know he did oversee an era of expansion for global football and and you know, um, the widening of the game and opportunities and money to different places in the world for genuine development purposes that, that perhaps he doesn't get credit for because he's sort of seen as as the man who was at the heart of the corruption, but less corrupt than you'd probably is, think. Is that the sort of, the almost the story of it? Because like you said, they, they have done, like we've had a World Cup in Africa, we're going to have a World Cup in Qatar, which like 20, 30 years ago would just be, wouldn't even be on the agenda, but it's obviously just the ways and means that we've got to have these. Yeah, I mean, he, he, you know, the, the World Cup in South Africa was a big deal. I mean, fine, we now know, you know, it was it was greased partly by a $10 million bung, but it's a big deal to take the World Cup to Africa. And yes, it, it, it will be, you know, it should be a good thing that the World Cup's gone to the, going to the Middle East in Qatar. Although, you know, there's all sorts of, distasteful things around the awarding of that World Cup, whether it's the bribery or the human rights or the or the whatever. But yeah, it, it's you know, it was a it, it's a good thing that the World Cup moves to different places, but also that football is developed and that that money is given to countries for the development of the game at all sorts of levels so that kids everywhere can play. And obviously, yeah. you know, there's bad sides to it because a lot of money went to the wrong places. But Blatter, it wasn't wholly bad. Yeah, I guess it's that kind of really the the points here around like with what he did with FIFA. You know, what what was what's the role of FIFA? You know, is it to promote football globally? And you know, which I guess yeah, you could say he has done that. And with the staging of of the these big events, um, you know, at places which haven't had it in a long time or, or maybe have never had it is is obviously super important for promoting the game. But if you're going to use football as a vehicle to help change lives and change the world. Yeah, you could argue that um, those diver- the, the uh, diversion of those funds or those policies in places like Africa or Qatar, where we know it's driven by these egotistical, potentially, you know, criminal activities at times, maybe he could have got a better hand. <laughs> well, he certainly could have got a better handle on that, I guess. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, interesting. You know, I, I must admit, uh, before we did this, I thought he was the number one Don. Uh, I thought he was the the, the, the master puppeteer, but uh, clearly not. Yeah, I mean, he he obviously let it happen, and he and he didn't do anything to stop it, knowing that this stuff was going on a lot of the time. And obviously, stuff came across his desk. I mean, you know, I think he 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 knew about um, there's the ISL case, basically a sports marketing agency that was central to a massive bribe scandal for years and years and years. And Blatter knew about this a long time ago, but. When he was asked about it at different points, his answer was, well, bribery wasn't illegal in Switzerland at the time this was happening. And technically, that was true. Bribery was not illegal at the time. So Blatter knew about corruption, but he was only concerned with whether it was legal corruption, not moral corruption. So, I mean, he's got lots of questions to ask, answer, but uh, he only makes number three and he's not my, not my top two. Yes. Well, speaking of the top two, we move to a man that almost has a name like a villain. Uh, it's Chuck Blazer from the United States, a man 
who had a separate flat for his own cat, and that seems like the perfect place to start. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Chuck's in here because he's he's colourful character. I did know Chuck. Chuck used to take your calls, even when even when you wrote bad things about him. I wrote that he'd been doing bad things. He was avuncular. He was friendly. He, he's morbidly obese and looked a bit like Santa. Um, he famously had a blog where he would post pictures of himself uh, as he travelled around the world. Uh, there's a famous picture of him dressed as a pirate at a fancy dress party. Um, he lived in Trump Towers. As you said, Will, he had a, a, an apartment there for his two cats, as well as his own part, uh, apartment. Um, he was famous in latter life when he was when he was poorly for driving around New York on his mobility scooter with his parrot, who'd been taught to swear at him by his wife. <laughs> so sort of this this ludicrous larger than life character um you know uh, he he posted pictures from red square in moscow after he'd been there on a trip to 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 talk to vladimir putin about the 2018 bid um he was implicated in the american prosecution the rico fraud in a big big way in the 10 million dollar bribes for south africa he was implicated in that he was implicated in all sorts of corruption related to concacaf that's the um, you know, North American and Caribbean uh, region of, of FIFA, where where he was sort of central to that for many years. So lots of big ticket fraud and wrongdoing and bungs, um, and also a really colourful character who you sort of, you know, I don't know what, what his moral justification for it was. Probably that this was just the way things had always happened in football. That that you know you scratch each other's backs you you rake off percentage of tv deals um and you bribe people and take bribes for giving votes for the awarding of tournaments it was just it was just no no skin off his back at all and uh, personally uh, you know my I sort of if you have a sort of grudging affection for chuck i guess mine came from his utter chutzpah at, at the way that he went about his crimes and his misdemeanors I first caught him personally ticket touting in France 98 World Cup. And by personally, I mean, we we had a tip off um, that Chuck Blazer was actually knocking out black market tickets in the lobby of a hotel in the south of France during France 98. So in other words, he'd got a bunch of tickets from the CONCACAF that had been allocated to the, to fans in the CONCACAF region and, and to officials. And rather than give them to the fans and officials to use at the games, he was selling them on the black market in a hotel lobby for like hundreds of euro, hundreds of francs or euros or whatever it was at the time above their face value. So we'd, we'd had a couple of witnesses rang me up or contacted me then at the Independent and said, look, um, we've actually got tickets. We bought tickets from this guy. And so they actually sent after the match, they sent me the ticket stubs. And it even had the official's name on it who'd been allocated to a referee or something from wow. CONCACAF. And, and, and this bloke had, had was an eyewit- two eyewitnesses said that Chuck Blazer was in the lobby of the hotel knocking him out. Uh, we put all this to, FIFA, to Chuck via the FIFA press office. And they said, oh, we'll have to come back to you, you know, Chuck's uh, whatever away on business or whatever so it took us about a week and eventually a fax came back from uh, FIFA saying I've spoken to Chuck Blazer about the, uh, the incident that you're talking about um, he remembers it he wasn't actually selling tickets in the lobby he was redistributing some tickets uh, as a favour to somebody um, and it was a case of mistaken identity and then he had some alibi who was his oh Henry he, he said he said he remembers it well because he was on his way to dinner with Henry Kissinger and that was it. That was that was the end. No apology. No, I'm guilty or whatever. Wow. But we had him bang to right, knocking out tickets in the lobby. And I think that says quite a lot about him, that he wasn't just into the big ticket corruption. He was willing to get his hands dirty and sell tickets in hotel lobbies and, himself. And that was in 98. So he, That was 98, yeah. And then he just sort of gains even more power over those years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was on the Exco. I mean, he was, he was on the Exco right up until... Um, God knows, uh, certainly through the votes for 2018 and 2022 and until the whole sort of, you know, the whole thing came crumbling down. And he actually, um, he was nicked on his mobility scooter by the feds um, and and they had all this documentation on him and all his wrongdoing. And he actually turned whistleblower, basically turned cooperating witness before he, he died a few years ago. Um, and uh, But before that, he turned cooperating witness and came clean about everything he'd done. Wow. Just lifted mm. the lid on it all. So I don't know if you call him an old school villain, but certainly, you know, a big villain, but a 
colourful character. And did he get, um, you know, did he get some sort of immunity by becoming a whistleblower? He was obviously banned from FIFA for life. I didn't, I don't think he served any time or he got a suspended sentence. But, mm. um, but yeah, he obviously, he got, he got um, a reduced sentence for, for co-op, being a cooperating witness. Do you want a fun fact? Next time you celebrate my birthday, you can also be celebrating the birthday of Chuck Blazer. Same day, 26th of April. Ah, if you put on a few pounds and <laughs> let, grew your hair and made it go a bit frizzy. <laughs> and lose all my moral. And lose Somebody all your, has actually yeah. allocated Rich a flat for his cats as well. As well. Is, uh, well, there you go. It's, it's crazy. Right, let's move on to our number one FIFA fraudster. I think that's what we're going to call them. <laughs> it is Jack Warner. Why is he here, Nick? Jack is my number one, I think, not just because of the sort of the range and the scope and the longevity of his criminality, but just the way that he was brazen about it, utterly lacking morality. I mean, stealing money to go to the victims of the Haiti earthquake is, is just one, one thing amongst many, many things that he did. He basically, um, you know, he's wanted by the American authorities. They're, they're trying to um, get him extradited from Trinidad and Tobago, where he lives. And whether they'll ever be successful, I don't know. But he's obviously, you know, he is still wanted for to, to go and stand trial for what he did in terms of the massive fraud in South America and over contracts. But just the brazenness of the way that he behaved over so many years in so many different ways. I mean, we could just touch on a few of them. Um, uh, for example, 2006, famously, Trinidad and Tobago qualified for the World Cup. We'll all remember that team. It was a great good news mm. story. And, and, and Jack Warner being uh, not just the uh, the head of CONCACAF and the head of, of Influential in the Trinidad FA and a FIFA Exco member and a FIFA vice president, you know, he obviously had access to everything that happened in the Trinidad FA. So what happened is the fans of Trinidad and Tobago who were wanting to go to the 2006 World Cup, the only way they were going to be able to get tickets is through the allocation that FIFA made to the Trinidad FA to give to fans. And what Jack Warner did is he basically took all the tickets that had been allocated and sold them via his family travel agency, St Paul's, adding on accommodation and flights. So basically, he effectively nicked all the tickets and packaged them in expensive deals and profited by God knows how many hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. I mean, that is just ridiculous. Now, I I did a story about this and sort of exposed this while while he was doing it because I actually rang the travel agent pretending to be um, posing as a punter and saying, have you got two seats for such and such a game? And, you know, and the recorded it while the travel agent told me yes but I'd need to buy this flight and this hotel accommodation and it would be and the tickets were being sold at hundreds of dollars above face value so I actually gathered the evidence simply by making a phone call to prove that he was knocking these tickets out via his family travel agency he just thought well yeah I'll get away with this and as you say it's brazen it's just it's insane really but, but not only did he do it and get away with it but the FIFA ethics committee at the time in that year investigated him, found him guilty, fined him a million dollars, and then didn't do anything. He wasn't banned and he didn't pay his fine. And Seth Blatter knew about it. And we got paperwork later showing that the FIFA Ethics wow. Committee had found that he'd violated FIFA's ethics. And yet nothing happened to him. That was one thing just related to 2006. Uh, the other one, which was more important to his players, is he, he basically promised them all sorts of bonuses and whatever and then just didn't bother paying them. He basically took the money that the Trinidad FA um, earned from, um, you know, from that tournament. And he got sued by his players. The players sued him in in the English legal courts. And I think that they, they won, but whether they ever got their money, I don't know. So he, he basically nicked, nicked his own players' bonuses and all the fans' tickets. Speaking of England as well, because you mentioned it before, but these are Jack Warner sort of has a lot of interactions with England and, and the FA as well, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, in 2008, England were bidding for the 2018 World Cup, which was voted on in 2010. In 2008, basically, Jack Warner said to the English FA, I want you to bring David Beckham to Trinidad, an England prayer friendly in Trinidad, or else I won't even consider voting for you. Basically, just effectively trying to blackmail the FA. You bring 
England to play a friendly for which he um, he the, the match did go ahead and uh, and the Trinidad and Tobago Football Federation earned six figure sums from ticket sales and more from TV rights for the game that featured David Beckham so basically he wanted them to come so that he could make a load of money on the ticket sell the TV rights pocket the cash and then you know, he didn't even vote for England after all that. So basically, you know, blackmail. But also around the same time that this was going on, one of his mates in Jamaica, Horace Burrell, owed the FA £135,000 from um, a match that England played a 6-0 versus Jamaica in London. Um, I think it was in 2006. There was um, the Haiti earthquake, you know, Mm. money for people who are like, who've who've been left with nothing, who've lost relatives, who've lost their houses. Um, uh, and this money got paid into Jack Warner's bank account. He nicked money for earthquake victims. This is the kind of calibre of the man you're dealing with. And then in, in 2015, he was charged in the US with wire fraud, racketeering and money laundering. He was party to the $10 million bung at South Africa. Uh, in, I'm sure he, 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 he was touting his vote around for every World Cup while he was in the Exco. Um, a lot of the World Cup bids of the last 20, 30 years have now been linked to corruption and, and dodgy uh, vote buying and, and Warner was central to all of that. Um, and then he was also central to that £40,000 bricks of $40,000 in cash to, to voters in, in his area of the world. Um, so he was involved in that as well. I mean, the, the list goes on and on, um, uh, taking money from um, different associations, including the English FA, purportedly for developing facilities in Trinidad, Tobago, but went into his bank account. Um, uh, you know, I sent you a, a table of five ways that the English FA alone had, had sort of sucked up to Warner since 2000. Um, when visiting England over over the years, the FA transported him in luxury, including in helicopters, giving him VIP seats at games. Uh, they took him to, to to private dining, Michelin standard private dining in the Tower of London. He, um, he, he met uh, members of the royal family. Um, he visited Prince Charles at Highgrove. And when Charles went to Trinidad, he insisted that he introduced Prince Charles to his friends. He had Prince William was flown to um, to fawn over him in Zurich in 2010 before the vote for the 2018 thing. <clears throat> We've already mentioned the Beckham thing. Beckham was, you know, Beckham was taken to Trinidad as part of an England team because that's what Jack wanted in 2008. Um, Warner made a load of cash off the back of it. There was a £135 write-off to Jamaica. And um, and then, as England campaigned to host the 2006 World Cup, the FA signed a five-year deal to assist CONCACAF, which Warner was the head of, and they also funded uh, functions in that campaign, um, uh, Warner functions in that campaign, and again during England's 2018 campaign. And that's just the way that the English FA have kind of sucked up to him and bunged him over the years, never mind potentially millions, tens of millions of dollars in bungs from other people. So I think Jack, for his brazenness and the sheer scale of his um, his uh, immorality and criminality, uh, deserves the place at number one in this list. And I suppose the fact that he's not actually faced those charges and still awaiting a, like a court date. Extradition, yeah, for the most serious, that, for the racketeering, that, yeah. That there's probably hundreds of stories yet to come out still probably i mean we'll never know i mean he's he's um he'll probably stay in trinidad and tobago for the rest of his years he's an old man now but um definitely worthy of of our place at, at number one uh and arguably possibly the worst person we've we've dealt with in uh any of any of our episodes well i think that's the perfect way to end series one isn't it jack warner the king of fraudsters is that what we absolutely the king of the football baddies jack warner you have a gold we get him a little award send it out to him yeah get out to trinidad he can host the uh he can host our dinner party the fraudies yeah look to do to kick off season two we can send it in a brown envelope It'll probably open. Um, Nick, thank you very much, mate. For I mean, we've done eight episodes. Me and Rich have learnt so much, but we just wanted to say a massive thank you to yourself as well, just for sharing some amazing and unbelievable stories. And thank you to Rich for coming up with the idea, and you, Will, for hosting it. And uh, it's been great. I've really enjoyed uh, the invitation to come and talk about football and football uncovered. Exactly. I think we've learnt a lot, and I think I'll be. You know, I won't take. Everything for granted is in terms of, you know, it's everything's not as it seems. Yeah. No. Football's not not as rosy as you like to think. No. 
I'm walking around with my rose tinted glasses on. I'm going to take them off, stamp on them, and say, "Look, this isn't reality. Will you need to get a grip of yourself?" Yeah, we could send them to Jack Warner. <laughs> yeah, take them. Send your uh, broken rose tinted glasses to Jack Warner in a brown envelope. That would be fitting. Yeah. That'd be a perfect way to start season two. Uh, Nick, where can people find you? At Sporting Intel on Twitter. Love that, uh, Rich. Um, where can people find you? Well, I don't want to be found now after after uh, uh, exposing all where these. Where can Jack um, Warner find you? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, my Twitter is not very interesting at all. At it Rich Jono. Rich is an avid bird watcher, Nick. I didn't know if you know that. Is he a bird? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, my Twitter is just full of uh, birds. Yeah, all the birds. Feathered birds. <laughs> what a way to end it. Um, thank you very much. If you've listened to all eight episodes, uh, thank you very much. Um, and if there's anything you'd like us to cast our eye on for, for a season two, obviously there's lots of football stories to uncover. So get in touch at Sport, at Sport and Intel. Massive thanks to Nick as well. Dickie Johnson, uh, really enjoyed it. So yeah, this has been Football Uncovered and thank you very much. Thanks for listening.